All right, let's commence our third session now on understanding the human personality, and now we're going to deal with discerning between the soul and the spirit. I have a, uh, a graph that I want you to look at, and let me just bring up the contents there. So, to understand the difference between soul and spirit, you've got to go behind the translations. Now, you're going to discover in this study that the translations of the Bible at large has avoided discussing the difference between spirit and soul, okay? Also, that the English language doesn't have a word to define it, all right? So, on the Greek table here, rather in the table, you see the Greek and then the English, the Greek and then the English. Do you see that on the left-hand column? And the middle column, you see the noun. And on the right-hand column, you see the adjective. So the Greek word pneuma is the English word spirit. The Greek word suke is the English word soul. And if you go to the adjective, the Greek word, the noun pneuma becomes pneumatikos. All right? And in English, it's the word spiritual. Again, in the Greek word suke is the word sukikos. And then in the English, we've made up a word, soulish. If you put that word into your dictionary, electronic, it will come up as a zero underlined with red because it doesn't exist. Okay? We've used it in our language, in church, in our vocabulary, speaking of someone being soulish, but the English word doesn't exist. Okay? Um, so, you'll see the relationship there. Is that clear with you for now? All right. So, the Greek word spirit is pneuma, from which we get the English word pneumatic. Those of us who are given to work with our hands that the mechanics use a tool which they call a pneumatic tool, which means it's a tool operating by air, all right? Um, and so you can see that where the word comes from, um, it being a pneumatic tool. <coughs> then um, the word pneuma means breath, wind, or spirit, okay? It's the Greek word pneuma, which means breath, wind, and spirit. And the adjective for pneuma is pneumatikos. And now the question is, how do we translate that into English? Because we know the word is spirit. All right? So the English word for pneuma is what? Spiritual. Is that right? Okay, we've discovered that already. The problem, however, is that when we come to the Greek word for soul, the Greek word is suke, which is the countless Different words, for example, psychological, psychiatrist, psychosomatic, these words you already know, okay? Because they all come from the Greek word, suke, which basically is the word, root word for doctor. All right? Um, it's where you get it from. You get the doctor, the psych psychological, the word, or psychiatrist, or psychologist, or someone is psychosomatic. Uh, in how they perceive their illness or so forth. And so you can understand where that comes from. It all ties into the concept of the soul. 
All right, so as we said, a psychiatrist is a doctor of the soul because itros, rather, is the Greek word for doctor. The itros, when you add the word itros behind something, it's the doctor, all right, um, of someone, or something, rather. Are you still with me so far? All right. And suke is the adjective for suki, uh, rather, um, Sukikas is the adjective for suke. So there's no hesitation about the translation of the noun. It's soul, but what is the adjective? That's where the problem comes in. Because the English doesn't have a word called soulish. All right? It's just not there. So we have to create a word and translate the Bible correctly. All right? Because in the English Bible, it's not going to show you. I'm going to show you. For example, in German, Dutch, Danish, and Swedish, and Norwegian, all of these languages have a word for soulish, but English doesn't, all right? Um, the English word is limping along, rather the English is limping behind because the necessary word is not there to convey the <laughs> distinction. Let's look at a few places in the New Testament where the word sukikos or soulish is used to try and draw the difference between spiritual and soulish. All right, let's take it a few New Testament um, places. Four translations, and I looked at and found various different words that are used in different versions, and I'm going to show you this right now. Let's have a look at it. In the King James, we use natural or sensual. In the New King James... They were, the word natural or sensual is used, but in the margin, the middle column, the word worldly is inserted. Then in the New American Standard, the word natural, and in the margin, unspiritual, and finally, worldly-minded is also in the column. The NIV says, without the spirit or natural, or unspiritual, and then they use the phrase, follow their natural instinct. All right? These are four translations I looked at to look at the concept of operating in a soulish dimension, and not one of these four translations come out clearly to use the terminology. I think the NIV is the nearest, talking about following natural instinct. Okay? So then unless we get behind the English translation, we cannot really grasp the distinction between spiritual and soulish. So let's look at three cases where soulish is applied to a body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 44, it's twice, and 46, it's once. It says, I've <clears throat> this is just my comment, I said I've never heard anybody teach on the subject before in terms of the distinction between being soulish or being spiritual, because it's not something that we talk about in church. We just brush over it as if it's not there. So in 1 Corinthians 15.44, it says, referring to the resurrection, it is sown a natural body, that is a soulish body. It has raised up a spiritual body, and there is a natural or soulish body, and there's a spiritual body. So Paul is talking about the type of body that is sown. In other words, at my death, 
When my body is put in the grave, it's put there as a natural body that has soulish powers. But when it's raised up from the dead in Christ, it's raised up as a spiritual body, just like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the powers of soulish reasoning does not come into play. I'm going to show you from Scripture because it's a different body. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? You will notice there's always the contrast between the soulish and the spiritual. And there is a soulish body and there is a spiritual body. I'm using the terminology of the body to define spiritual and natural. Are you still with me? Or spiritual and soulish. In verse 46, Paul says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, the soulish, and afterward the spiritual. He's talking about the order. First, the natural body is placed in the grave, and then a spiritual body is raised up in Christ. Okay? The order that you see there. So our present body is soulish. Our resurrection body will be spiritual. And that, I understand, it doesn't need the gear lever anymore. In other words, when my body is raised from the grave in Christ, my desires to do the will of God is no longer processed through my soul. Because now my soul is infused with my spirit. And I just do the will of God because I no longer have to overcome soulish, carnal desires because it no longer has power over me. All right, are you with me so far? All right. So our spirit will simply decide where to go, what to say, what to do, and it will happen. It will be a body controlled by the spirit, not a body controlled by the soul. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 1 is a picture of some creatures which would be represented as having spiritual bodies. To me, this is exciting because in the resurrection we will have a body like Jesus. Do you agree with me? We will go where we want to, no problems about dealing with the soul. All right, Because in the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ, if he needed to come into this room, he doesn't have to use the door. He can walk through any part of the construction because his body is in a different element. Do you agree? And so our glorified, resurrected body will not be reliant upon our soul, our will, emotions, and intellect to do the will of God. It will just automatically do the will of God. I'll show you from this chapter in Ezekiel what it says about these creatures, and you would have already seen that perhaps. It says Ezekiel 1.12, talking about the cherubs. It says, each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn when they went. They have spiritual bodies. They just go wherever the Spirit wants to go. And in the same passage it says in verse 20, whenever the Spirit wanted to go... Wherever rather, they went because there the Spirit went. Because now they are completely under the influence and the governance of the Spirit. And of course, 
even in this life now, as we grow up as sons of God, we make the transition of being governed over by the soul to being governed by our spirit. You know? And um, as we grow up in the Lord, we no longer have to say, I think, I feel, I want. We say, what is the desire of God in this matter? You know, and then we bring the scriptures to mind and we make a decision with our sanctified mind based on the revealed counsel of God. You know. This is how I understand that the spiritual body is a body which is directly motivated and controlled by the Spirit. Right? It's not, it doesn't have to go through the processes of the soul. It's like a car in which you just switch on the engine and it goes wherever you want. At whatever speed, you don't even have to bother with a gear lever. You know, it's those modern cars. Yeah, you just sit in it, it brings the safety on itself, puts it in, hooks it up, uh, it scans your, the iris of your eye, it says, yes, you're the owner, it starts up the engine, and you don't have to say where you're going, it sends the intentions of your heart. As you put your hand on the steering wheel, it takes your fingerprint and says, yeah, that's it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, it's incredible. And then it says, shall we drive or fly? You know, shall we take a shortcut through the ocean? Futuristic. So those are three cases where the word sukikas is used as a body. No English translation that I know of uses the word solis, and consequently the distinction is obscured, as I showed you in those four translations earlier. All right. Now let's look at other places where the word sukikas is used. Here we come to a point where there's a clear conflict between solis and spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 but the natural man, the soulish man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no one. Now, if you're preaching the word, you've used that scripture to define unbelievers at some point. When it says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. But does it refer to unbelievers? It says the natural man. Both those born of God and those in the world can be natural in the way they receive things. There are those born of God in the church that cannot receive things of the Spirit. Because they are not mature to receive from the Spirit. Is that right? When I come to speak in a church, I take 5, 10, 15 minutes to measure the water level in the house. Is the water at the ankle, at the knee, at the waist, or at the breast? Because I cannot insert a word in the house 
that will drown the people. So I make certain statements. I'm testing the environment. I'm watching the reaction of the people to see if the statements I'm making bring a response as to from which point I can minister the word. Okay. Once I've made my assessment, I'm going to minister from that point onwards. Okay. Because you've got to determine where the people are at. You agree with me? It doesn't help if you present something, for example, at master's level when the class is at high school level. They're not going to make the connection between what you're trying to say. All right? So it's very vital, I believe, for us to know that in the house of God, it's possible for those born of the Spirit to simply receive things through their natural senses because they have not learned how to receive from the Spirit, even though they have the potential to do that, because they are born of the Spirit. All right? So the soulish man is not in harmony with the Spirit. Have you seen that already? Even with believers. Sometimes when you talk to some believers about spiritual experiences or revelation, they look at you funny. You know, where do you come from? You know, these, these experiences seem a little bit out there. And then they want to brand you as cuckoo. Isn't it true? Because your spiritual experiences is different to theirs. <clears throat> Says he cannot receive the things of the Spirit. Cannot receive. He cannot understand them. You know, when I was at university, I often had a talk with my professor about certain things. He would sit there in his chair with his beard, smoking his pipe, and we'll be talking about matters of theology, because he's my the theology professor. And I would talk about this and talk about that, and I would share about some spiritual understanding, and he would say to me, no, I don't see that. I don't see the Scripture say that. You know? And I've come to realize that this natural man who simply studied um, the Logos, cannot receive the rhema. He doesn't have the realization or the understanding of the rhema. So let me not waste my time. Because he's not born from above. So when I write my thesis, I can only write from a natural perspective. I cannot insert spiritual revelation into it because he doesn't have the ability to receive it. So I have to say to myself, I'm writing this paper for an academic environment. So let me keep it clinically academic, you know, in, in how you present it. Even though I don't agree with what I'm writing completely, but that's what they need in order for me to get through the course, you know, because they don't understand it. This is important because it brings out that there is a certain sense of opposition between the spiritual and the soulish. Will you agree with me? Even in church. Then when we go to the episode of Jude, 
verse 19, which is a rather illuminating verse, talking about people who have made trouble in the church. It says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Now, it's clear that they are in church, is it right? You can't create division in the church if you're not in the church. But it says in the English Bible, they are sensual persons. But what it's trying to say is they are carnal believers. Okay? They are governed by their soul. They are not spiritual. And so these are the people in the denomination who takes out the Constitution. And they bring insinuations and accusations against the leaders based on article number three. Sub... Um, Paragraaf 2C. Volgens daarie stelling het die wet oor 3. You know, because they, they, they relate to the whole matter out of a natural mind. So we have in church both those who are spiritual and those who are soulish. Okay. Can you accept that fact? You know that already from a pragmatic point of view. Not everyone in church is spiritual. Okay, understand that. All right. Let's talk about, let's see what questions you have about this session so far. The difference between soulish and spiritual. You're clear in your understanding that your spirit is a separate entity in your being able to receive spiritual revelation from God and even from others, governing how you operate in that realm or your soul can be susceptible to natural carnal influences if you don't bring it under the discipline of the Word. Okay? In other words, let me put it this way. We have to disciple our souls concerning the purposes of God. You have to inform your will, your emotions, and your intellect about the will of God. We have that responsibility. All right? That's why the Bible says, I have to renew my mind. And the renewal of my mind comes through the studying of Scripture. Studying out the mind of Christ and the purpose of God. And then bringing myself under subjection to the revealed counsels of God. So that when my soul places a demand upon me to do something that is not godly, I can say, no, we don't do that. You know? um, sorry, we can't accommodate you today. Um, we, we don't do that anymore. We used to do that outside of Christ. And when we were babes in Christ, we did those things and got away with it because the Father seems to allow us to do certain things wrong when we are babies. But as we're growing up, the Bible says everyone who is a son is scourged, which means corrected and disciplined. All right, is it right? Some people in church get away with, with murder. Is it true? Because they are babies in Christ. But those of us who have come into leadership, into responsibility in the house, when we do the same thing that they've done, we don't get away. Is it true? We get disciplined, scourged, and we even get reprimanded 
both from the Lord and from those who provide leadership. Amen? So are you, are you okay with this? Can I, can I move forward? All right. 